Hello and welcome to Atlantic Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Programme works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programmes focused on equity and healthcare, socio-economic equity and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer committed leaders from around the world an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues while strengthening their confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. For this series, I travel to Bangkok to meet up with some of the first Atlantic Fellows from the Equity in Brain Health and Health Equity Southeast Asia programmes. Today, I'm joined by Tim A. Hardy, an Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. Tim is co-founder and executive director of MIMI, a mobile education project in Myanmar. Before that, he spent many years abroad, and I began by asking him why. I was born and raised in Myanmar, involved in 1988 nationwide uprising that pretty much toppled military regime. I was kicked out of my school for my involvement. They tried to arrest me. For your involvement in the demonstrations yeah, in the uprising. Yeah, I was leading the demonstration. I was giving speeches on human rights on behalf of the student body. I managed to escape, and then I ended up in the United States, and then I studied computer science, and then worked in technology, banks, and then financial companies for about 15-plus years. It was not something that I planned that I would be in the United States for 20-something years. I thought it was a couple of months. When the things come down, I will go back and either continue my study or continue the work that we started. But that opportunity did not come. Two months turned into two years, two years turned into a couple of decades. What prompted you to go back? And were you certain that it would be safe for you to go back to Myanmar? In 2010-11, the military decided to start the political transition. That created opportunity for me to go back and see what's happening. I got connected with some of those leading figures of this transition. They came to New York and D.C. and then met with us. They said, come back and then let's rebuild the country, rebuild the society together. That was our dream. That was like, are you serious? Especially coming from you guys. You guys are the ones committed crimes. Now these same people telling us to come back and work with them. Should I trust them? What What's, convinced you? I don't know, a survivor guilt? I managed to come out to the United States and then I had a wonderful opportunity to get quality education, good job decent life in New York City. And then every day was always thinking about my friends, my family, people that I knew left behind, struggling, suffering, some are in the jungle, dying or dead, arrested. So these are the images that last 20 something years are always in our heads. When you finally took that flight home after so long, what went through your mind? It was surreal. I never thought that we will be able to come back without worrying about our own safety and be arrested at the airport. At least a few months of negotiation or discussions, both in person and online, took place before that step. So my first trip was, I could not make commitment until I see the conditions. So they were like, okay, come back and be an observer. So that was agreement that I went back. They welcomed me and then let me sit in some of those tough negotiations between military and ethnic armed groups. But in the back of my mind, it's also like, are they real? 
after the trip, I wasn't sure. So I went back second time. And then I made a decision, no, it's too risky for me to get involved in this transition and especially with the peace process. So I decided to observe. And then that's when I realized a lot of children on the streets, they're everywhere selling things, restaurants. Why are they not in school? What about their parents? What about the government? Why do people around them think nothing wrong with this? I didn't realize that that child labor issue is pretty much almost culturally accepted even back then. How did you go about addressing that? Reconnect with some of my old friends in Myanmar, Burma at the time, and I started to talk to them about these kids. And then they were like, why are you so shocked, man? This has been out there for many years. Education system was not functioning properly. Poverty, lack of jobs for their parents. So all these things pushed these kids to drop out of school. They worked like 12, 13 hours every day, seven days a week to make money to send back to their parents back in the village. So I was the only one seeing this as a serious problem. For them, it's like, we have bigger problems than that. I think it's a very powerful image for me at the time, even being Burmese, seeing these kids carrying loads of bags in the jetties, bigger than their own little bodies, standing up without shoes, working at these restaurants, selling water bottles in the hot sun. These are the images that I took back with me to New York City and then shared that with my friends. We formed this group, Myanmar Mobile Education Project. We did online fundraising and I took the donations back to Myanmar and bought old buses and then renovated them into little classrooms because these kids work 12, 13 hours a day, seven days a week. So idea is simple. We are taking classrooms to where they work. My initial plan was to set it up and then leave it up to some of my friends who are in Myanmar to run. At that time, I had no plan to move back to Myanmar. I was constantly communicating with the teachers, my friends on Skype almost every day, gradually realizing how widespread and complicated this child labor issue is in Myanmar. You felt there was more to do that you couldn't do from New York. Yep. So I decided to take a six-month leave of absence, went back there, started to form a team, but run into a lot of problems because a lot of basic elements of forming organizations are not there. So I left my job in New York, went back there for another six months or a year to continue building a team. Now I've been back about four years. And there's something like 2.7 million children between the ages of five and 16 who find themselves out on the streets, living a life not just of impoverishment, but working for a living. What impact does that have on the wider society? This is the critical issue that we need to overcome because we are rebuilding the society and the country altogether. Imagine these young people not being educated properly, not being brought up in this warm and loving family, not getting all these critical life skills to be able to contribute back to the community and societies. Without these children, transition in Myanmar not going to be possible. They are the ones that are going to be taken over in the next few years. We started with our own one community, one project in last year. It reaches over 3,500 kids, about five major cities. That's when it hit me. This is not something that my team or my project could resolve. So that's why I started connecting bridges with the government, other like-minded CSOs and NGOs to build a movement. Also at the time, the government was changing. We had a historic election 2015 that elected the opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi and Hop Party into the government. That government also recognizes this child labor issues. Before then, 
We cannot even use the word child labor. Things have changed dramatically. How does it feel to be working with authorities when the authorities in your country had, a couple of decades ago, wanted to arrest you? I'm just more looking forward, focusing on the present moment, and then trying to take these small steps toward the bigger goal, believing in these children and these young people. We need to take them along with us in order for us to get to their destination. How many children have you helped to date your organization? Since we started this MIME project, 15,000 children gone through our education programs. It's quite encouraging to see this number of kids got education and then vocational skills that they needed to move on. But compared with 2.7 million, we're just like a drop in the bucket. This is what triggers me to work with the government and collaborate with others to create a movement where we come together because these kids are everywhere. It's not just where the Miami Project is. A final question about the Atlantic Fellowship. You're an Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity Southeast Asia, graduated 2016. What does it mean to be part of a fellowship? I think two parts. One is a personal level. I have gained a lot of experiences and then also skills in terms of leadership, how to tell stories in an effective way, how to create this sustainable movement. On the other hand, connecting with these fellows, especially with the seven programs all across the globe, I start to find people who are in the similar topics, areas that they're working on, and also learning different way of solving the problem that I'm currently in, in Myanmar, and then making it a lot more productive by plugging in their support and experiences and then also contributions, both technically and also morally. We've been discussing to share what we have done in Myanmar with other fellows in the different countries where they also have child laborers and the kids who are out of school. These things are currently happening in the fellowship. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Tim A. Hardy, Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. For more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to the Atlantic Conversations podcast.